Suspected criminals who didn't know the camera was watching. New video that might be connected to recent shootings. B.C. passes a grim COVID milestone. Now we have over 1,010 people who have died from COVID-19 in British Columbia. The latest on the pace of vaccinations. And the tragic loss of the language keeper. He would make you want to learn. He would make you curious about the language. How Harry Lucas devoted his life to preserving his coastal identity. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but first, a Vancouver police officer is off the job but still on the payroll after an extensive investigation has left him facing theft, breach of trust, and drug charges. And it's not the first time he's faced troubling allegations. As Rumina Dea reports, Constable Neil Logan has been in the news before accused of assault. This is completely unacceptable. I'm very disappointed by the conduct of this one member. One member with a track history of trouble. Vancouver Police Constable Neil Logan, a 12-year member of the VPD, is now facing seven charges. Theft, breach of trust and possession of drugs after an eight-month-long investigation by the VPD following a workplace incident. I'm limited in what I can say. During the most recent investigation, police say one of Logan's alleged associates, 20-year-old Dilpreet Cooner of Surrey, has also been charged with four drug trafficking-related offences. The VPD say Logan is not connected to a gang. It's not the first time the constable has made headlines. Grossly use of force as a police officer. Logan has been the subject of two OPCC complaints. Vladimir Chaikun, an engineer, claims he was beaten and bruised from his head to his toes, literally in 2016, after Logan and his partner attended the Chaikun home for a wellness check. Eventually, he turned and smacked me across the side of my face while I was still driving. Logan's ex-girlfriend came forward with allegations of abuse in connection to a 2017 incident. While the couple was on vacation in the U.S., no criminal charges were laid in these two incidents. Fast forward to two months ago, when Logan was charged with assault and uttering threats in an alleged domestic violence-related case from Surrey, dating back to 2014, say police. With all the other police officers that are performing exemplary on a daily basis, I can assure you that those that do stand out, those that are breaking the law, uh, that come to my attention, um, are addressed with as, as expeditiously as possible, and we work within the laws that we have. Logan is still a VPD member, but he's currently not on active duty. He's been suspended with pay. The criminal matters and subsequent Police Act investigation will have to run their course before a decision could be made on Logan's future with the VPD. Romina Dea, Global News. New security video tonight shows the torching of a car believed to have been used in one of two shootings over the weekend. As Grace Key reports, five young men, including a 14-year-old boy, have now died in this latest explosion of gang warfare. 
Coquitlam RCMP say it's unclear if their latest shooting has any connection to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. But Global BC has obtained surveillance video that shows all the hallmarks of a gang-style shooting. The timestamp shows two cars pulling up at the 3500 block of Gislison Avenue at 12.49 a.m. Sunday. 13 minutes later, just a few blocks away at Kingston Street, RCMP find a man with gunshot wounds. Witnesses say several suspects were seen speeding off in a car. Back at Gislison, a third vehicle pulls up at 1.02 a.m. At least four people pile out. They take off their jackets and toss them into the car. They pull out a couple of gas cans and take off what appears to be bulletproof vests. As the passengers head into the two waiting cars, one man is seen trying to repeatedly light something. He tosses it and the vehicle goes up in flames. As it continues to burn, he jumps into one of the waiting vehicles and just two and a half minutes after arriving, they're gone. About an hour earlier, 28-year-old Dilraj Johal was found shot to death in his Richmond condo. Police believe his death is part of the area's ongoing gang war. There have been five fatal shootings in the Lower Mainland within two weeks, all connected with gang activity. If nothing else, these latest acts of violence should burst the false bubble of allure of gang life. There is no security or longevity in the lifespan. Death, jail, Betrayal are the only certainties. Back at the Coquitlam car fire, a global camera spotted a bullet at the scene after the car had been towed away. The shooting victim is expected to survive. Grace Key, Global News. Well, three days of COVID-19 numbers in B.C. And while we have now surpassed 1,000 deaths, there is reason to be optimistic. Let's take a look. We have 1,475 new cases with the average daily total now below 500. B.C.'s total case number now stands at 58,107. Tragically, we've had 22 more deaths. That means, again, over 1,000 people have now died of complications of the virus. 358 people are in hospital, 72 of those patients in the ICU. 50,541 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 5,220 active cases and 7,313 in self-isolation. Now, while some of those numbers offer hope, BC's death toll, as we mentioned, has reached a tragic mark, surpassing 1,000 over the weekend. This comes as the BC Coroner's Service has confirmed that at least one refrigerated morgue truck has been deployed in the Fraser Health region. Richard Zussman reports. Tragic update. Sadly, this weekend, we've had 22 more people who have died in our province from COVID-19. And that means now we have over 1,000 people, 1,010 people who have died from COVID-19 in British Columbia. Deaths climbing in recent months. From March until September, the first wave of the virus, 234 people in B.C. died from COVID. In October, there were 28 deaths. Then the surge, 176 deaths in November, 560 in December, and 109 so far in January. The deaths spreading mainly through long-term care homes. In October, there were 25 long-term care homes with COVID cases and deaths in just five of them, with two homes registering 10 deaths or more. Now look at the outbreaks current as of last week. 43 homes impacted, 30 of them have had deaths, 15 with 10 or more. 
It is a reflection of the increased transmissibility of this virus at this time of year. The seniors advocate once again, calling for staff at long-term care to be tested before going to work, something similar to what's happening with the NHL or the film industry. We need to, to be asking um, why we are not uh, using some of the tools in the toolbox that might allow us to pick up some of these positive cases. We have been absolutely looking at all of the options. But in Fraser Health, there are some morgues in the red zone at 80 to 85 percent of capacity. And in Fraser Health, they have now used a refrigerator morgue truck instead of existing space. Even though they're extraordinary expansion facilities that we don't normally use, they're being done with a level of thought, which means that we're not going to cause harm either physical, emotional, psychological, or whatever. Efforts being made to stop the virus that has already caused so much harm, not just to the thousand dead, but the uncountable more impacted by these deaths. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Yeah, and Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the numbers. Keith, we are seeing a dip in overall new cases, but they are going up in some areas. And as we've seen in some of these other provinces, the situation can turn on a dime. It can turn very quickly. In fact, what we're seeing is a bit of a, a, a geographical change in where the virus is spreading by the most numbers. For months and months, since the beginning of the pandemic, about 90% of the daily cases are in Fraser and Vancouver Coastal. That started to change in mid-November. It's accelerated in recent weeks. Take a look at the breakdown of the 1475 cases over the weekend. Again, Fraser Health now, for the second, only the second time since May or June, has it dipped below 50% of the cases uh, overall in Vancouver Coastal continues to track around at 20 percent but what's alarming is the interior and the north because of the low populations there uh, statistically they have a per capita situation that's far worse than anywhere else in the province vancouver island continues to show a bit of an uptick as well dr barney henry's again today saying the high case numbers we're seeing even though we're flattening the curve it seems in fraser and vancouver coastal doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet we could be in a situation that is now in quebec and ontario which is very grim and very serious very quickly if we don't keep the pressures up and obey public health measures. Here's Dr. Henry. This is such a critical time. I, 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 I get so um, challenged with it because I know how tired we are and we hear these stories about, you know, politicians in other provinces going off on vacations and things and thinking that it's not serious enough. But we know what we need to do here in BC, and we know that we can get these down even further. You know, we're, we watch what's happening in Ontario and Quebec and next door, and where hospitals are getting overwhelmed again. We need to keep st holding our line here in BC. Now, if you're wondering what's happening in Ontario and Quebec, a reminder, uh, Quebec is so serious, they have an 8 p.m. curfew. The death rate there is five times that of B.C. on a per capita basis. Ontario, new modelling suggesting they could be having 6,000 cases a day by the end of this month and 100 deaths a day. And again, overwhelming the ICU system there in terms of not having enough beds to uh, treat people in ICU by the beginning of February. Very terrible situation, which shows you can't let up the pressure in B.C. All right. Good. Fair warning to all of us. Keith, thanks very much. Well, there's growing concern tonight about Dr. Bonnie Henry's decision to extend the period of time between shots for those getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Under the current plan, British Columbians will be waiting as long as 35 days between shots. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, the province's top doctor says science is on her side. As some British Columbians receive their first COVID-19 vaccine, 
More questions are being raised about the province's decision to alter scheduling by delaying second doses. As nurses, we follow science and we follow evidence. Uh, we give medications out every day uh, and we be, read very closely product monographs that tell us how to administer medications. And so nurses are questioning why they would be deviating uh, from this schedule. Also concerned, the doctors of BC. They told Global News, we are meeting with government, including the provincial health officer, to discuss the vaccine rollout schedule and some of the issues that have been raised, including supply, priority groups, and the interval between first and second shots. Dr. Bonnie Henry is strongly defending the decision to delay second doses and get more people vaccinated. The protection from the vaccine at two weeks after the first dose was 92.6% for the Pfizer vaccine and 92.1% for the Moderna vaccine. That is, quite frankly, amazing. Pfizer calls for a second dose in 21 days. Moderna's second vaccine is due 28 days after the first shot. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration warns that suggesting changes to the FDA-authorized dosing or schedules of these vaccines is premature and not rooted solidly in the available evidence. These trial data also show us um, that the people who were in the Pfizer vaccine uh, trial received their second dose from day 19 to 42, and the Moderna trials, they received the second dose day 21 to day 42, and there was no difference. Will BC's doctors and nurses be sold that it's okay to delay that second vaccine? Some convincing clearly still needed, along with more information. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, it appears more Canadians are clamoring for an injection. A majority are eager to get the COVID-19 vaccine, transitioning from a place of caution to one of optimism, according to a new poll by Angus Reid. Our Ted Chernecki breaks down the numbers and what it all means in our fight to get herd immunity. Health authorities and government leaders could use a shot in the arm these days because their approval rating from the public is falling, as the desire to be vaccinated is climbing. In September-October, only about 40% said they would get vaccinated as soon as it became available. Now it's 60%. People have now gone from, hey, it's great that you've ordered vaccine and it's coming, but I'm not sure if I want it, to where is my vaccine and why is this taking so long? That change in willingness is up 12% nationally, 7% in B.C., but in Alberta, public acceptance hasn't moved at all, despite it having one of the higher infection rates in the country. We're not seeing a significant change in the number of people who say they won't get it, who now say they will get it. So the net number or the overall number of people who say they won't want to be vaccinated hasn't really budged. The blue bars in this chart represent the public's approval of the government's vaccine rollout. The red bars represent how much of the vaccine that's already been delivered has actually been administered. At the time of this survey, about 40% of the available vaccines remained in storage. BC, frankly, could be doing better in terms of distributing the vaccine that's been delivered to them. It's it's far from 100% at this point, and we know that rollout across the country and in lots of provinces has been perceived to be a bit clunky. If residents are impatient now, just wait. The province is saying it will have received 450,000 vaccines by the end of February. 
Sounds like a lot, but that's less than 10% of the population at one dose per person. And the prescribed two doses knocks that down to less than 5% going into March. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A Vancouver-based COVID-19 nasal spray will soon be tested, but not here. Sanotize has created a nasal spray that shows it can stop COVID-19 from spreading throughout the body. The spray will have its first clinical trial in the UK on Tuesday. Studies have shown that nitric oxide is designed to prevent the virus from passing through the nose and into the respiratory system. However, it does not give 100% protection against COVID-19 and is instead supposed to be used, used like hand sanitizer, but for your nose. We call it the hand sanitizer for the nose because this is really what it is. As when you use a hand sanitizer, it's because you think you may have touched something and you may have some bacteria or virus on your hands. It's the same thing. If you go outside and you meet with people and you think you may have gotten infected, then at that point you spray it in your nose. This will release a very small amount of nitric oxide and will kill the virus in the nose. A local Serbian family touched by tragedy. Their vehicle slammed by a driver suspected of outrunning police, leaving the children with grave injuries. How the community is mobilizing to help, next on the News Hour. Impeachment ultimatum, the latest on the battle in Washington, D.C. to remove the president from power. That's coming up on the News Hour. And talk about timing the amazing coincidence that comes with the Okanagan New Year's baby later. Right now, though, the Serbian community is coming together to support an innocent family devastated in a crash caused by a vehicle trying to run from police. They are recent immigrants to Canada, and as Andrea McPherson shows us, the crash has altered their lives forever. A horrific crash along the Coquitlam New West border on December 27th has changed the lives of a family of five forever. The youngest um, nine-year-old She's able to take a few steps. She's communicating very slowly. Um, the 13-year-old is in a wheelchair. The Savic family was inside this Kia Sorento stopped at an intersection when a Dodge Charger allegedly evading a traffic stop slammed into their vehicle near the brunette eastbound exit. The Kia flipped upside down. The Dodge ended up in the ditch. Several ambulances transported the family to hospital. Their 15-year-old son ended up with a broken arm and head lacerations, but their 9- and 13-year-old daughters are still in poor shape. The children have sustained serious injuries that will, for the rest of their life, affect them um, through no fault of their own. The family immigrated to B.C. from Serbia just over three years ago. They're very active in their church and folklore dance community. The community has now banded together to show their support with the goal of collecting $100,000 through an online fundraiser. Currently, the parents are unable to go to work. They need to be with their kids in the hospital 24-7. And this is just something that we as a community can pull together for them. The prognosis for the two sisters remains day-to-day -day, and there's no estimate of how long they will be in hospital. They're very thankful and grateful for the generosity and the support from the community. The BC Independent Investigations Office has been called in to investigate to determine if RCMP actions played a role in the crash. Andrea McPherson, Global News. 
Just ahead, another anti-mask outburst caught on camera. I've been a good, loyal customer to you. The customer's vile rant and the devastating impact on the business owner. But first, with two big restaurant dates coming up, the plea to the provincial health officer. Good evening. All but northbound traffic blocked here because of a two-car crash in Vancouver, right in the middle of the intersection of Broadway and Renfrew. Take Grandview Highway instead. Kermac Collision and Auto Glass provides no-cost windshield chip repairs with your insurance coverage, and Kermac donates 100% of their income from chip repairs through Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a two-car crash in Vancouver. The owners of some of Vancouver's most well-known restaurants have fired off a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry about her last-minute order to end liquor sales and close up early on New Year's Eve. The group also is asking BC's top doctor to consult them first before making an 11th-hour order again. It's a hangover from New Year's Eve, still causing headaches for BC restaurants nearly two weeks later. We're losing thousands of dollars a month, and... Um, that New Year's definitely didn't help. It, it was a significant blow to the plan. An order with little more than 24 hours notice to stop liquor sales by 8 p.m. on New Year's Eve not only caused seating cancellations and lost revenue, restaurant staff say they became the focus of customer frustration. They sort of dug in their heels and saying, we've had a lot of faith in the process until now, but this one I'm not buying. And so we felt a lot of pushback. Now, 13 prominent BC restaurants are asking Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry for an apology and commitment towards better communication. It could have been avoided if we had even known three days in advance, hey, you know what, 8 p.m., liquor sales are off. Three days, we would have said, okay, time to shift gears, let's call our customers, let's plan this out. Right after New Year's, Dr. Henry said restaurants should not have been surprised that there were signals, stricter measures were always a possibility. We can't pick up on signals. We can't run a business and make business decision on signals. This time, still no apology, but a different explanation. That was done at short notice because of the issues that arose and I needed. Um, we, with, uh, you know, we had an imperative to take some action knowing what we knew. Restaurants are making it clear they can't afford a repeat of New Year's Eve. A lot of us restaurants aren't going to survive if we have to keep working like this. I've committed as well to having a discussion with them about uh, coming uh, events over the next coming months. With Valentine's Day offering the next big boost for business without better communication from the province, the relationship with restaurants might really be on the rocks. John Hua, Global News. A Kelowna restaurant owner is sharing her frustration at the increasing number of verbal attacks her staff is facing because of COVID-related rules. Global's Jules Knox shows us what was caught on camera and what to do if it happens again. I've been a good, loyal customer to you. I've been a good, loyal customer to you for so many years. A COVID confrontation at Kelowna's Frankie We Salute You restaurant. A customer upset her name and number are written down for contact tracing. Can we remove the number from your guys' database right away? Okay, good. Yeah, Great. Just please don't yell and argue. Nobody's yelling at you. You need to relax. Nobody's yelling at you. Okay, I, I will leave. I will leave. And this is going on Facebook. Restaurant owner Christina Skinner says when the customer came in, she refused to wear a mask and was ranting about COVID conspiracies. And then on her way out the door, she told me that she hoped my business would fail and that she hoped I died of COVID. 
The restaurant owner says the customer went on to post the video online and then launched a hate campaign against her on social media. I like to think I have pretty thick skin, um, but I've never seen anything like this before. This kind of behavior and um, the frequency of this behavior is very, very new and uh, it, it's wearing me down. The Downtown Kelowna Association suggests that businesses should call the non-emergency RCMP phone line if customers won't follow COVID protocols or leave. That's the biggest thing we can do is call the police and have them settle these things because quite frankly, business owners and you and I, we're not equipped to deal with that kind of thing. I've had to walk over here and ask her to remove my number and now she's telling me that I'm yelling because it's taken that long. The customer in question told Global News that she would be speaking with her lawyer and wasn't available for an interview on Monday. Say goodbye, say goodbye. I'm go you're going on Facebook. Bye-bye. Bye. As for Skinner, she's asking for the public's support as many restaurants are already suffering business losses and she says staff are simply trying to follow the rules. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Up next, Vancouver Coastal Health addresses a communication breakdown. We're extremely busy on the front lines doing everything we can every day. How the chief medical officer defends the slow trickle of information about deadly COVID outbreaks. And what to do about Trump. Why the president is on the brink of impeachment again. Semi here in Burnaby causing delays for eastbound traffic on Highway 1. Just before Gillardy, the right lane is partially blocked. Save on foods and save on time. Shop online, then swing by for quick, safe, and free curbside pickup. Super savings online now at saveonfoods.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby. Breaking news south of the border, where Donald Trump has approved a state of emergency declaration for Washington, D.C. That will allow federal law enforcement to work with local authorities on security for Joe Biden's inauguration. And efforts are intensifying to remove Trump from office before the transfer of power. And as First Lady Melania Trump breaks her silence after last week's assault on the Capitol. House Democrats now poised to issue a blunt ultimatum to Vice President Pence tomorrow, invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump by Wednesday, or they'll make the president the first ever to be impeached twice. I think every day he's in office, he remains a real and present danger to the country. Pence, seen late today arriving at the White House, is said to oppose implementing the 25th Amendment. So Democrats today introducing a single article of impeachment, accusing President Trump of, quote, inciting violence against the government of the United States. The charge right now reads in part, President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He therefore betrayed his trust as president. We have to stand up to this man who incited a violent riot at our nation's capital. It was a massive humiliation to our nation. It had a lot of people die. Already more than 210 House Democrats back impeachment, but there's no broad support among Republicans. In the Senate, Democrats would need 17 Republicans to join them to convict and remove the president. But so far, only one frequent Trump critic, Ben Sass, says he would consider impeachment. Two others say President Trump should step down. Well, I think the best way for our country, Chuck, is for the president to resign and go away as soon as possible. Many Republicans warn a partisan impeachment would further divide Americans. The Democrats are going to try to remove the president from office just seven days before he's set to leave anyway. 
First Lady Melania Trump breaking her silence, expressing her condolences to the families of those who died and calling for calm. Our nation must heal in a civil manner, she writes. Violence is never acceptable. A potential Senate trial to remove President Trump would likely happen after he's already gone from office. But President-elect Biden tonight insists it would not interrupt his first 100 days. Can we go half day on dealing with the impeachment and half day getting my people nominated and confirmed in the Senate? So uh, that's my hope and expectation. The chief medical health officer for Vancouver Coastal Health is speaking out tonight in the wake of controversy over COVID-19 transparency. Dr. Patricia Daly talked to Global's Linda Aylesworth about criticism over the deadly outbreak at Vancouver's Little Mountain Care Home and why the daily updates on cases at care homes have been stopped. It was late November when one of the province's deadliest COVID-19 outbreaks started to spread through Little Mountain Place, a long-term care facility in Vancouver. To date, nearly all 114 residents have tested positive and 41 have died. It was a bit of a shock to some members of the public when uh, some of those numbers became public. It certainly wasn't our intent to hide anything. Even so, the fact it took many weeks before those numbers were released to the public led to criticism that Vancouver Coastal Health wasn't being transparent. But Chief Medical Health Officer Patty Daly says that with so much on their plate, it was a matter of prioritizing. Our priority is always to communicate with families and with facilities, it's uh, notifying family members when an outbreak has been declared, notifying each family if, if their family member has been diagnosed. Early on, the province did release daily updates on the numbers of cases and deaths, but that changed when they determined that those numbers didn't always align with what the families were being told. So a decision was made, and we supported this, that we needed to communicate with families, but not to provide those daily updates because it did lead to that Anxiety. But now that not having those regular briefings seems to be causing anxiety, things are about to change. Last week, the ministry is now committed to, at least on a weekly basis, providing updates to the media on the state of the outbreaks in long-term care facilities as well, and we support that. In the meantime, Vancouver Coastal continues to look for ways to reduce the spread in long-term care, where two-thirds of COVID-related deaths occur. But it isn't easy. When staff become infected, they can be infectious to others two days before their symptoms start. So even in a facility that's doing an excellent job, there may have been an exposure in the facility. We can all help while waiting for the vaccine. By following public health guidelines, we reduce the amount of virus in the community. And if it isn't out there, it's less likely to get in here. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Up next, the legend of Harry Lucas. It leaves a void in everyone's heart because uh, the smile and the influence that this man had. The life of a BC linguist who kept a coastal language alive. And coming up in sports, the Canucks roster takes shape with one big name not on it. Tribute tonight to a pillar of B.C.'s First Nations community who died on New Year's Eve. 80-year-old Heshquit elder Harry Lucas disappeared while traveling on his boat to visit his family. After an extensive search came up empty, his body was found by his granddaughter. Kylie Stanton talked to her about her personal loss and why Lucas's death is a blow to all B.C. First Nations.
Yeah, he loved fishing this river. It's a loss that can't really be put into words, but instead is experienced. Close to the water, that's where I feel his presence. Harry Lucas died New Year's Eve. The 80-year-old Heshkwit First Nations elder was last seen in a house that afternoon, stocking up on supplies and fuel before heading out on his 22-foot skiff, destined for the village of Hot Springs Cove. When he didn't arrive, a massive search was launched, but only turning up debris from his boat. Hours later, his granddaughter, Kayla Lucas, took her dog and followed her instincts. We made it to the beach. And that's when I had seen my grandfather and that image is stuck with me forever. After the initial shock wore off, Lucas jumped into action, pulling the body up onto shore, bringing him home. That's what his spirit needed was to be found. But what's been lost is now rippling through the entire Nuchanath First Nations. Lucas, a residential school survivor, was one of only 11 remaining fluent speakers of the Heshkwit dialect. The language was his passion, and teaching it, his calling. It leaves a void in everyone's heart because uh, the smile and the influence that this man had on people, right? For Lucas, keeping the language alive took on many different forms. He volunteered his time working on the language revitalization poll project. He was a translator for everything from BC treaty negotiations to tribal council meetings and taught Heshkwit classes through North Island University. You can use it in various sentences. In a sense, he was a bridge connecting the past to the present. Now there's genuine fear progress may be lost. It's an emergency. It's a call to action and it's a reminder to all of those people that Harry taught to share that knowledge. With very little of the language written down and only 10 remaining Heshkwit speakers, elders say this is a turning point and there are no excuses. Every person has the ability to work on their language and, um, you know, and to honour the memory of their of their old ones. These recordings are a place to start. I can just picture him. Lucas's words and teachings captured here, a resource for the next generation and a gift for all those who loved him. You can do it. Kylie Stanton, Global News. What a life. All right, time to check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at that forecast. Mm -hmm. More rain. More rain, in case you didn't know already. Yes, so I wanted to show you this. It is, we did have at least one dry day over the weekend, and we've got more on the way, everyone, but we've got a series of systems. They all look like one big long one, but it's a series of systems. So southwest flow, so mild wet weather expected through the next 36 hours, and that mild airflow is pushing right into the interior regions. Most areas in the Okanagan Valley just expecting rainfall, but that will shift in through the northern regions as well. So there is a risk of freezing rain and that's in through the BC Peace River area and that's when we get that warm air pushing up and over this cold air mass down below. So the rain falls through that cold air mass and freezes on impact. So Fort St. John watch for uh, freezing rain tomorrow morning. Slick conditions potentially on um, 
uh, you know, sidewalks and streets. We also have a rainfall warning for our region. Once again, North Shore, Northeast Metro Vancouver, up to 60 millimeters of rain by tomorrow afternoon. But we're still expecting more rain after that. It's not until Wednesday morning that conditions finally ease off across coastal regions and it continues in the interior regions. Now, we talked about that mild flow. So, yes, most areas are just looking at rainfall, but the BC, sorry, the uh, Columbia and the Kootenai region will still see snow overnight. And we're talking about 5 to 15 centimeters potentially before it transitions to rain during the day. So that mild flow right up into these northern regions. Prince George, a high of 5 degrees for you tomorrow, well above seasonal. And that's the case right across southern BC. And we will see a high of 10 degrees, 4 degrees above seasonal for our region. Periods of rain on and off. And we will continue to see that into the early hours of Wednesday. But things look up on Wednesday and Thursday with a bit of sunshine. All right, here's a look at your central windows weather window from today. Looking out over Boundary Bay, some people enjoying the uh, windy conditions there. Thank you to mm-hmm. Anne and Drew for that. So West Coast. Making the best of it, no doubt about it. All right, Squire joins us now with a look ahead to uh, sports, and we're only a couple of days away from the Canucks' first game. That's right, Wednesday. And, of course, they didn't practice yesterday because of a COVID issue. It was a false positive. Nobody has it on the Canucks. Okay, Uh, the Canucks' newest player arrived today, Travis Hamanek. I thought he looked pretty good today. Uh, His wind was all right. He missed the first week because he was in quarantine, but uh, today he was out there alongside Quinn Hughes. Also coming up, what are the chances, the third generation of the same BC family to be named a New Year's baby? At ease, everyone. There's no COVID on the Canucks. There is no COVID on the Canucks. That's right. They uh, practiced today. They didn't practice yesterday because one of their players, and they aren't saying who, tested positive for COVID in the morning, so they canceled practice. However, a second test on that same player yesterday was negative. That's great news. But even that false positive is actually kind of a good reminder to the Canucks to follow protocols. I'm glad this kind of happened to give everybody a wake-up call now than, than later on. And I'm um, just happy everybody's safe, and, and we just got to keep following the, the proper protocols to make sure everybody's safe and healthy. Okay, today at camp, we saw the newest defenseman show up after being quarantined, and it was also waiver day for a handful of players. Jay was at the arena. He fills us in. With training camp winding down, Monday was roster reduction day for the Vancouver Canucks. Six players were placed on waivers. A couple of defensemen who've seen spot duty for the Canucks the last couple of seasons, Guillaume Brisebois and Ashton Sautner, designated for assignment. Same for forwards Justin Bailey, Tyler Gravak, and Sven Berchi. But the biggest name placed on waivers by the Vancouver Canucks today, Louis Erickson. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised by this move. In his four seasons here in Vancouver, Erickson scored all of 38 goals. Not the kind of production or value worthy of that six-year, $36 million contract. Uh, We've made decisions internally for certain reasons. Obviously, Jim has the final call on that. And uh, as a group, we just felt that this was the best route to go right now. The group that skated at Rogers Arena on Monday sure looks like the one that Canucks coach Travis Green intends to go with to start the season. The lotto line of Elias Pettersson, JT Miller and Brock Besser continues to skate together. Bo Horvat is flanked by Tanner Pearson and rookie Nils Hoglander. Adam Gaudet remains in the middle between Antoine Roussel and Jake Vertanen. Should mention though that Zach McEwen also rotated in and out of that line with Vertanen. Jay Beagle, Brandon Sutter and Tyler Mott grinding out the forward lines. I think they've all come in 
uh, in pretty good condition, knowing that it was going to be a short camp. Um, the, the tempo of our practices have been sharp. The execution's been steadily getting better. Uh, from our standpoint and our team, I like the way our team looks right now. We've added some really key pieces and, and guys have stepped up this year and look even better than they did last year. So I think uh, we got you know a really bright future and you know, I think we're going to have a really good team this year. Monday also they debut a veteran defenseman Travis Hamannick. Hamannick emerging from his seven-day quarantine to pair alongside Quinn Hughes. He'll wear jersey number 27. He looked really good today and um, you know we did a little bit of drills where you know it's D to D and um, so I'm excited to play with him and you know we're just going to learn on the fly and you know he's been in the league a long time so I don't think it'll it'll be an adjustment for either one of us. Two defensemen that we didn't see on the ice with this group was Jordy Ben and Brogan Rafferty, although Rafferty skated on his own afterwards. Reporting from inside the concrete iceberg known as Rogers Arena, Jay Janor, Global Sports. I mean, he should wear his long johns. At the scrimmage on Saturday, Tyler Mott and Adam Gaudet got into a fight, which uh, Mott said was really just a family squabble, and they're all good now. Um, you know, me and God's obviously settled it on the ice and it's behind us. We shared a laugh after, um, you know, it's, it's obviously behind us now. We're looking forward to, to getting ready for the season. If you have competitive players on your team, there might be an occasional scrap in practice. And, uh, but they're, the players are fine with it after it happens more than you think. Happens in here more than you think. Um, the season is over for the Seattle Seahawks a week earlier than most thought, certainly most, uh, well, earlier than I thought, uh, but maybe the loss of the L.A. Rams shouldn't have been surprising because Seattle didn't look as good offensively down the stretch of the season as they had been in the first half of the year. We scored all those points early in the season. Um, they really couldn't slow us down. And uh, the, the, it was almost lost that it was just so consistently good. And then as we, we got down the stretch, it got hard, you know, and, and the games got hard. So that You saw our style of play really got minimized some that we can't let happen. I will share this with you, that we have to run the ball better. and, and, and not, not even better, we have to run it more. And uh, I know the fans aren't real jacked about hearing that, but, uh, um, but Russ knows it too. It's almost like they adjusted to the Seahawks and the Seahawks didn't adjust to their adjustments. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, thanks very much, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Sophie. Coastal Health has issued another alert about a potential COVID-19 exposure at a Vancouver restaurant. It was at the Denny's on Southwest Marine Drive over a two-week period. More on that coming up tonight. Now we'll have the latest on a crash at the intersection of Broadway and Renfrew in Vancouver that sent four people to hospital. Police say traffic in the area will be impacted for a while. Those stories and a lot more when you join us tonight at 11. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jay. And when we come back, a B.C. family that's got way more than its fair share of New Year's babies. Believe B.C., featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe B.C. in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times.
Well, the first baby of the new year is always cause for special celebration, and one BC family has held that title a number of times. And that includes this year when they wel welcomed their third generation New Year's baby. Global's Megan Turcato has more. We figured she'd come earlier that week, and she just managed to hold out till New Year's. Baby Rose Dawson came into the world more than two weeks early to become the first baby born at Vernon Jubilee Hospital in 2021 and continue a family tradition. Rose's grandfather, David Howe, was the first baby born at the Revelstoke Hospital on New Year's Day, 1960. 27 years later, Rose's mother, Devanna, was Revelstoke's New Year's baby for 1987. So this time, when Devanna's due date was scheduled for mid-January, there was some family speculation it could happen again. I kind of chuckled because that was unlikely, I thought. <laughs> unlikely, but as the family found out, not impossible. In the end, baby Rose beat the odds when she was born just after 2.30 in the morning on January 1st, sharing a birthday with both her mother and grandfather. It was pretty surreal. It was hard to like actually believe that she hit that, that date perfectly because I really... The odds of it, and even though you want it to happen, I wanted her to share a birthday with me. I just, you know, it was too coincidental. Hey, you gotta be kidding me. That'd be just totally crazy to have all three of us actually the first babies of the city if New Year's. That's just insane. Due to the pandemic, the happy grandfather has the opportunity to meet baby Rose, but the family is hoping by next New Year's Day, they'll be celebrating their shared birthday together. Megan Turcato, Global News, Vernon. Oh, happy birthday, Rose. <laughs> and they'll never forget and everybody else. Yeah. birthdays, right? Mm. Exactly. Easy to remember. Right. <laughs> All right, final word on the weather, Christy. Well, once again, rainfall warning in effect. Metro Vancouver, so the North Shore, northeastern sections, we're expecting up to 60 millimeters by uh, the afternoon hours tomorrow. So tomorrow's certainly a wet one, but the good news, it looks like it'll ease off by early morning hours on Wednesday, leaving us with a couple of days of sunshine. Holding out for Wednesday, Thursday, for sure. Thanks, Christy. And thank you for watching. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.